HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Ray Goldborn, a food service expert with over 20 years of combined experience in luxury hospitality and high growth CPG. Prior to founding NADA and advocating for mindful menu solutions, Ray worked for brands including Bonza, Simulate, Mason-Dixie, and Sir Kensington's, and now helps brands define and execute sales strategies to unlock the food service channel across multiple segments. Welcome, Ray. Thanks, Allison. I appreciate you having me. Happy to be here. I'm, I'm just, I was thinking about it. I don't think we've had anyone talk about food service, and this is our 226th episode. (laughs) So I was like, who can I get to talk about food service? And there's literally nobody better to talk about food service than you. So I'm thrilled you're here. Yay. Well, thanks for having me. Food service certainly is a very, very grand mystery. Um, And so I... It's not surprising to me that you haven't had anyone on up until now, but hopefully I won't be the last. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah. Um, and so let's talk about it being sort of the mystery. I think my, um, you know, sort of like baseline understanding of our industry at the moment is that brands are trying to figure out alternative ways of doing things. You know, like the playbook has gotten a little shaken up. People are trying to figure out, is there another marketing channel that 
you know, maybe doesn't cost as much? Are there other sales channels that maybe haven't been as explored? You know, I think people funding solutions, you know, everyone's kind of looking for alternative ways. And food service, I, I know more than one company that three years ago would have gone directly to consumer, you know, through retail. And now they are building a food service brand first to get the cash, essentially, which you and I can talk about, build up some demand, and then go into, um, you know, the the CPG part. Um, so I guess, talk to me a little bit about your, you know, your sort of way that you would think about food service, just because it's not... It's not the solution necessarily for everyone. A lot goes into it. It's still a sales channel. You still have customers. It's still complicated. Um, but, you know, in your experience, you've brought, you know, several different brands into it. Um, you know, why did they go into the channel? What did they, you know, what was the benefit, I guess, and, and maybe some of the watchouts? Totally. I mean, just to kind of reiterate, I think we're in a very interesting space right now in food, mm -hmm. particularly for brands that are emerging, that are challenging, you know, legacy brands um, that are disrupting categories. So, you know, th there's there's been a lot of, uh, I guess, new entrants, you know, over the last several years. And to your point, you know, how do we kind of create, you know, companies and brands that are overarchingly healthy? Um, mm -hmm. and not relying on any one given channel. So in mm -hmm. my experience, and you're, pro it's, you're probably not uh, shy to this either, is that oftentimes you find brands where you know, they're looking to go into retail first or they may be D2C um, first before they even start thinking about alternate channels. And what I've found, at least in food service, is that you know, it's a really great opportunity to highlight the overall health of the brand if you're able mm -hmm. to play in 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 various in various channels and 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 food services is a, a huge business there's so many different sub segments that you can work with and i know that we're going to get into that but mm -hmm. i think the thing that's that's most Im important to highlight is that what i th think a lot of brands oftentimes get wrong is that just because it's not retail and because it's not direct to consumer doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. I mean, there is right. an entire infrastructure that I think that brands need to take into consideration when they're building out a food service channel. And, and oftentimes, you know, that is kind of backed into after, you know, maybe a couple of hiccups. So that's really where I come in is to, is to help iron out as many of the wrinkles uh, in the upfront so that the entry into food services is, is smoother than it would have been alternatively. And also try to create a food service business that is complementary to some of the other core aspects of the business, mm -hmm. whether that be retail focus, whether that be D2C. I right. do love the fact that you're, we're now starting to see more brands that are pursuing food service initially. I think that mm -hmm. you know some brands are, are are better suited for that, but based on their product and how it's packed out and and you know where mm -hmm. it can actually show up. Um, but that's probably less common than the the alternative where you see retail first and food service second. Right. It's interesting because you said there are two different things. It's like one is an alternative channel because you know, the costs of making a product, selling it to a distributor, then selling it to a retailer, then, you know, giving that retailer an EDLP or whatever you can in marketing so that the price isn't too high because of the distributor. You know, I, I think people are like wary. Um, 
it's the first time where I'm hearing brands talk about strategy of which retailers they want to go into, not yeah. based on demographics or psychographics, but based on how much they can afford. Yeah. I'm starting to hear that more and more. And I think that's part of why you're seeing the natural and conventional and mass channels kind of bleed together a little bit because people are realizing okay, yes, it's great to have my product in that natural channel. It is a great brand halo and my velocity is probably going to be a little higher, but my margin on that channel is probably not as high as I think it is right when you do all of this stuff. So one element of food service is like, okay, maybe there's another way to do this. And the other is just to your point about diversifying your revenue streams we saw that with COVID, you know, you've got to have, you've got to have different places where you're making money because you don't know what's going to happen with each of those different channels. So, you know, diversity is always a good idea when it comes to everything, especially revenue. Um, so, so that's a really good way to frame it up. Yeah. I would also say on the back of that, you know, when you talk about diversifying your revenue, as you continue to grow in D to C, that business oftentimes is going to cap out at a certain point, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're looking at retail, similarly, there's only so many doors that you're going to be able right. to grab at Walmart or Whole Foods mm-hmm. or Sprouts or, or Target. And then it just becomes a velocity game, right? Or mm-hmm. you're, expand, you're expanding your product mix and you're, and, and you're putting quite literally more, more SKUs on shelf. So that so you know what brands oftentimes do is they'll start looking to food service as incrementality and inc- mm-hmm. incremental revenue above and beyond, you know, their 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 hero channels, so to speak. So mm-hmm. I, I completely agree with you. And I think that food service can really be uh, a very healthy kind of exit off of the freeway to growth in the brand while also being able to leverage a lot of the great things that have been put in place in expanding and capitalizing on on retail D2C growth. Yeah. And maybe even getting some economies of scale. Totally. Right. Like, I mean, that that's the other part of it. It's a revenue channel that is that is so volume based that it could actually end up potentially helping with your all around costs and the margins on the other channels. Um, So it sounds great. We're all like, yay. At this point, everyone's (laughs) like food service, food service. Um, I know it's not quite that easy. I want to just share one thought with you that, you know, I heard, I honestly, it was before COVID. So I don't know if this person would still say that, but basically he was giving me some thoughts and he was like, you're either building your brand or you're building volume. Mm -hmm. And when you can do both at the same time, that's great, but you're usually going to have to choose. So build your brand. And I, I wonder if that is still true at this point, because that was when money was kind of easy. And I'm wondering if volume is actually a really nice cure that maybe brand is going to take a little bit of a backseat to at this point, um, just to keep the lights on and just to keep you know, the cash flowing. So what are your thoughts? I mean, I, 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 my thoughts are in the best of worlds, you're able to do both. And I think that that is one of the 
potential guiding lights of getting into food service is that you have those two components. It's a little bit more difficult, right, to 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 build towards volume in retail. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas in food service, depending on on your your product mix, you can kind of play both la- lanes where you can really u- utilize food service as almost like a creative marketing channel, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. in, in addition to playing, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit more in the back of the house. Um, right. So you know, we're a lot, that, yeah. you know, where a lot of uh, a lot of the magic happens, uh, you know, and, and and using that as an opportunity to build out uh, build out the volume. So I think that the best brands, that do, the brands that do it, that 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 really utilize food service to its fullest uh, c- capabilities, are the ones that can figure out how do we highlight the brand within this space that ultimately dovetails and also promotes what we're doing in some of our other other channels, but utilize mm-hmm. this segment as an opportunity to push volume that can ultimately contribute back to some of the things that you've already mentioned, like, for example, economies right. of scale, whether that be mm-hmm. through your, your co-man network, whether that be through, you know, warehousing and shipping and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. So I think that there's an opportunity to do both. I My perspective is this, is that if you can do both, then focus on maximizing that opportunity as opposed to focusing on exclusively working on the volume piece, because the volume can right. go away overnight. Right. Mm -hmm. But the brand impression lasts forever. Right. So when you're saying that, I'm thinking about, you know, something where it's not, you know, because a lot of the branded, a lot of the stuff that is positioned to us by potential quote unquote customers as food service is actually what we would categorize as a partnership. Okay. Where it's more of a marketing opportunity than it is a sales opportunity. Right. Like, I mean, getting into some of the meal kits, for example, they're mm-hmm. not putting in a PO right. a lot of the time, right? Whereas like if you are making, if we're making bag and boxes of chimichurri and it's just, we're selling it to, you know, restaurants and they're using it as their chimichurri, right? So that's, I guess what you would call bulk versus yep. branded little things of chimichurri on the table, a la Cholula. Yep. That bulk is a little bit in, in what I've seen coming for like to us is a little bit more of a sales opportunity. Whereas the branded, I think that some of these restaurants and retailers have caught on that it's a marketing opportunity. And then they're not, they're not putting in traditional purchase orders because you're getting the opportunity to be in front of their engaged audience. So yeah, I guess maybe break that down a little bit because I'm sure I'm saying things that are, that are actually, you know, but there are words for them that I don't have. (laughs) Well, I I, think, so I think, I think that you're right. I think that you're right. I think that the one, the one uh, point that I want to call out is that it seems as though in your situa- situation and circumstance at Haven's Kitchen is that mm-hmm. you have a lot of inbound coming in because mm-hmm. you're not aggressively proactive in going after the opportunities that are out there, right? So, mm-hmm. the, you know, so they're going to come in, in any form that, that, you know, that, that they would. Whereas if you were to mark out a strategy where you were going after unbranded volume opportunities, then mm-hmm. that would be part of your your, your call structure, your outreach structure, right? right. In addition mm-hmm. to um, your outreach structure, that would be looking for branded opportunities that could number one amplify your brand, but also you know help differentiate your end cons- customer or end operator against you know their own competitive set. So right. to your point, 
you know, volume plays tend to be, you know, back of the house, exclusively mm-hmm. in bulk. large format, right? Bulk, mm-hmm. bulk offerings where they may be, you know, internalizing the operations on their side to break it out, whether it be a meal kit, whether it be them using it as a, as an ingredient to, a, you know, to a larger dish or it's a, mm-hmm. you know, a sauce that's an accompaniment as opposed to kind of a, a, a you know, a very um, explicit branded opportunity, such as right. like a, a sachet, like a, you know, a single use packet or mm-hmm. something that's going to be found on a tabletop somewhere. So I think that there, right. there, there are some real distinct lines that you can draw between those two opportunities. But I do think that it all comes down to how are you kind of scoping out your go-to-market strategy? And if your go-to-market strategy is looking for unbranded, you know, opportunities, then that's fine. But you can also supplement that by going after branded opportunities as well. I mean, great segue, Ray. So, you know, most of the people I would imagine that are listening to this do not have a separate team or bandwidth or resources to to map out a whole go-to-market strategy. But what I would love is if you could give them sort of the first steps, the first questions that we should be asking ourselves to figure out what does work for us, what works for our product, what works for our category, you know, what what should the beginning of thinking about making a strategy look like? Yep. Yeah, thanks for that question. I think that's so important. Um, and I think the first question that any brand should be asking themselves is what is our intention in moving into the food service space? And I think that asking that question can help really define a lot of the pillars that you're going to be, you know, kind of chasing, right? So if said brand determines that, you know, we're looking for ways to increase our top line revenue, then that would lead me to say, then maybe you want to focus more on these volume opportunities because you're 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 less interested in you know in the, the gauntlet that one that one brand needs to go through in order to maximize on branded opportunities. So let's look, really focus mm-hmm. on these these volume plays. And there there are you know segments within the food service space that you might be able to do that. Such as industrial is 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 a segment within food service where uh, where unbranded opportunities are you know tend to be more of the norm. Whereas if the brand says to themselves, we're looking for an opportunity to increase our brand awareness in spaces mm-hmm. where we know that our, our, our consumers are showing up, then we know that we need to win um, airlines, for example, or we need to mm-hmm. win um, you know, higher education, colleges and universities, you know, because mm-hmm. we need the folks who are patronizing those spaces to recognize that we are showing up in those spaces. So I think that once a brand can identify what ultimately the outcome is, and maybe not necessarily the end game, so to speak, but what are they actually looking to get out of their activity in food service will really help define how they're going about um, preparing to enter into food service, how they're going to resource their food service team initially, and the planning around their initial food service uh, um, um, strategy. And then ultimately, Mm -hmm. what are some of the ways that they want to resource their food service division, both from a human perspective and an operational perspective, uh, so that they can continue to grow that business um, with intentionality? Amazing. Which leads me to the next questions. (laughs) So let's say your leadership team and you're like, okay, and listen, it would be wonderful to have a bottle of our thing on every, I'm thinking like truff right now is thinking, yep. how do we get our truff bottles on every table like Cholula did? 
mm-hmm. right? Whereas like we are not getting a fresh pouch of chimichurri on any tables because they have to be refrigerated and that's a yeah. nightmare. So I think it's that's a really good way to think about it. Like what's the goal? Is it is it top line? Is it brand? If it is brand, where are the places and the channels where our target consumer lives yep. and shops and experiences life? I did read something really interesting the other day. This is a total segue, but I do think it's interesting. Something like 80% of the household consumer choices in America are made by women over 40. It might be even over 50, but I think it's over 40. And something like 90 or some ridiculous percentage of women over 50 feel completely ignored by marketing. Yeah. And I'm just wondering if, and then, oh, and this is what made me think of it. Then I read that when you, the average travel consumer in America is something like a 60 year old woman, something, something like it all kind of aligns. So if you're selling something, for example, for like the tweens, which this mm-hmm. is fairly straightforward, you might not want to necessarily have like a single serve thing on an airline. But if that's your target demographic, <laughs> airline sounds pretty good because these people, they shop, they're your target consumer, and they are likely to make the decision to buy you again. And that's yeah. ultimately the purpose, right? Because the airlines thing flip a lot from they my do. understanding. That's not they, steady. They do. I mean, airline, yeah. you know, it's never, airlines in my experience have never been uh, the most sound from a cost uh, matrix standpoint. But right. from the standpoint of increasing awareness, uh, uh, and and getting those eyeballs on the brand, whether that be through the packaging, whether that be through on mm-hmm. you know on air on flight menu placement, that's a certain degree of intimacy that that, mm-hmm. that that's worth that's worth the cost if you know what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, s- similarly to you know hospitality and lodging, if you're able to to be in a you know in a in an in room dining program, you know where someone mm-hmm. you know at the end of a long day is, you know, calling up a meal to their room and, you know, your, your brand is a part of that experience. That's a really intimate experience that I think sticks with folks. And ultimately, how is the brand then going to leverage that to then drive that same customer back to where they need to be on shelf, right? Like um, the bon so, maman little jelly exactly. jars that I'm exactly. obsessed with. Well, well, since we're doing this, maybe go through a couple of them. Like you've mentioned industrial, you've mentioned colleges, you've mentioned airlines, you've mentioned in-room dining. Yep. You know, obviously there's like the QSR, the sort of like quick serve places where maybe you can get, you know, a package of chips or something. Yeah, I think it's funny because we we can get into this conversation, and I think that this is also some somewhere where a lot of brands that are just getting into the space initially start stumbling a little bit because mm-hmm. there are so many sub segments within food service. Mm-hmm. You almost have to be like laser focused in which ones you want to play in, right? Mm. Um, so to so yes, 
all of those that you had just mentioned, you know, whether it be uh, commercial, commercial restaurants, you know, and that's, you know, independent restaurants that are kind of like highly prestigious in like, you know, within like city markets, right? So think of New Mm -hmm. York, you know, there are a lot of like brand standalone independent restaurants in New York that resonate no matter where you are in the country, right? You talk about, Mm -hmm. you know, creating a halo effect for your brand. I think identifying those, you have kind of those smaller regional players where they might have a really strong presence in the Northeast or the Southwest, for example, but, you know, nothing more outside of that. And that could be kind of in that fast casual space, that QSR space. And then you have the national players. So these are like your big, your big boy, big girl um, whale accounts, you know, so anywhere from, you know, the Paneras of the world to the, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to the, um, to the sweet greens of the world, you know, the ones that, you know, both are going to be fantastic for any emerging, you know, brands volume, but also will do wonders from a brand perspective. So that's Mm -hmm. the restaurant space. So then you have uh, your, what what is called the non-commercial space, right? And that is basically higher education, corporate cafeterias, Mm -hmm. sports, Mm -hmm. sports and entertainment, where, where a lot of those kind of individual single use packs can work. But again, those are big operations sometimes, right? So there could be a real back of the house opportunity for you from a large format Mm -hmm. pack perspective. So I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't forsake that space. There is a lot of red tape when it comes to playing in the commercial space. And I don't know how far we want to get into the weeds here on this, on this, (laughs) on this episode, but we're talking about third party contract management companies that oftentimes operate on behalf of their clients. So a client would, for example, be a Goldman Sachs cafeteria or, Mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, or, you know, Madison square garden or Mm -hmm. Yankee stadium, Mm -hmm. right. They Mm -hmm. would be a client and they would essentially outsource the management of their food and beverage operations to Mm -hmm. a Sodexo or to an Aramark or to a compass group. So you're almost Mm -hmm. having to like parallel path that sale and that, that strategy with Mm -hmm. number one, ensuring that you're playing to the contract management company, but at the same time, you're also playing to the, to, to the decision makers at Yankee stadium at, at Madison square garden at Goldman Sachs. So there's that space as well. Right. Uh, And, and that, and that's similar for, um, for higher ed. You'll, you'll, you know, there are a handful of highly prestigious universities in this country that are independently operated um, from, a, from, from an F&B standpoint. Um, mm-hmm. But most of them, the vast majority of them, uh, are similar to uh, some of those corporate and sports and entertainment bodies where they essentially off, 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 um, offshore their, their, their right. management to a contract management company. I remember learning about that because I tried to get involved years and years ago with my kids' elementary school in the cafeteria. Mm. And they basically gave me the number of whatever company it was that they used. And I didn't get anywhere. Okay. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about now that we have a little bit of a strategy, we're going to figure out how to execute. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. 
Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and their rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. I'm back with Ray Goldborn talking about food service. Okay, so before the break, we were talking a little bit about, you know, you identify as, you know, a good strategy starts with what is our intention? Are we, is it, you know, top line, which is probably more bulk? In that case, what are the opportunities there? Is it branded? In that case, really thinking about like, who do we want to get in front of thinking about, you know, what type of experience we want a potential customer to have with our product, et cetera. And so now this team, this fictional team is like, okay, I think we have an idea. We want to go bulk. We want to go back of house. We make this great chutney. It's very hard to make. It's great on burgers We've identified we just want to be the in-house chutney for every flame-grilled burger joint that we can find. And mm-hmm. now we need to figure out how to how to do that. Does it come yeah. in a bucket? Does it come in a bag? How do they want to receive it? And and so I guess there's the that piece of it, which is, you know, what I think of as like operations. Yep. And then there's the, okay, who are all these flame grilled restaurants in America? And do we need a whole person or team for that? How do we know if there is a customer before we build the product? Like what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Um, what would you do if you were that <laughs> chutney team? <laughs> I love that question, the, the chicken or the egg. Unfortunately, in food service, it, it's neither. It's just kind of like this miraculous right. um, right. you know, kind of presentation of the both at the same time. I think right. that you know the next step that you want to deci- decipher as a as a brand once you've kind of decided, okay, this is why we want to do food service. This is in in, in theory, you know, after just kind of anecdotally looking at the landscape where we believe we want to show up, where we believe that you know our our, our consumers are you kind of want to start getting a little bit further into the weeds and start answering some of the more challenging questions. So like, for example, what is your, what is your, your competitive set look like in the space? You know, mm-hmm. is there an offering such as this, such as yours, such as this ch- chimichurri in, mm-hmm. in the market right now? Right. 
and 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 what are the what are the dynamics look like around this competitive set? Is there a price point window that we need to f- to land in in order to be competitive here? Is there a pack size uh, and 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 uh, and case count that we need to produce in order to? not rock the boat so much at the operator level in this space, right? Because like mm-hmm. the last thing you want to yeah, do- they don't want to get it the way they don't want to get it, right? Exactly. They, they want to get it the way they want it. And usually right. the way they want it, <laughs> the way they've gotten it, right? Right, so, yeah. So, so I think that the reason why it's important to ask all of those questions and just come to some sort of definition around those questions is because that then starts dialogue internally at your brand, right? That right. then gives the the strategic and the leadership team an opportunity to now bring operations into the fold and say, hey, look, we have a fantastically talented co-man network that we're currently using. Can they build this out so that we can win here, right? Mm-hmm. We've identified that this is the price point we need to get to, you know, give or take, you know, 10 or 20% margin expectations for the distributor. Um, we know that this is the pack size that we need to get to, and this is the type of pack that we need to get into. Can we do that within our existing network, or do we need to start facilitating conversations outside of our network so that we can actually play in this space? And I think that that right there alone is like a green yeah. light, red light situation, because if you're not able to produce you know, a three-gallon, for example, bag in the box um, mm-hmm. within your current co-man network, then the next you know, rule, uh, you know, the, the next, you know, part of the, of, of the project is we got to find a place to be able to do it. Right. And then once you find a place to be able to do it, can they do it within the price point that we need in order to be competitive? Because once you've answered all those questions, that's when you want to start involving marketing into the mm-hmm. conversation, right? Like yeah. how much, how do we refine this value proposition so that maybe we're not being held uh, too close to our competitive set, where we can actually put a proposition together that promotes a, a, a certain degree of value that an operator is going to pay for if, in fact, you're coming in at you know a pretty significant premium to to your competitive set, and that's oftentimes going to be the case if you're you know an emerging brand or a challenger brand coming up against you know a legacy brand that's already mm-hmm. doing some sort of you know in this in this case sauce. So I think it's starting to do some of your homework around the space mm-hmm. to understand mm-hmm. where are where is this type of product already showing up? Can we then start to look at what we need to do in order to play in this space? And then what's realistic for us to be able to start stealing share away from that, right? So you transition from mm-hmm. having those in-house conversations mm-hmm. to, to okay, looking now, outside. To mm-hmm. looking outside, exactly, right? Mm-hmm. How do we now go find out where are all of these these you know American grills uh, that were that we're that we're speaking of right? Um, mm-hmm. Where where do these American grills show up in and which segments? So you may very well find that there are twenty five American grill operators, and when I say operator, that's just kind of like a, a single entity, right? There mm-hmm. are twenty five American grills that operate in the quote unquote commercial space, doing you know straightforward conventional restauranting. Now, Mm -hmm. there also may be a handful of American Grill operator experiences that fall within corporate cafeterias, that fall Mm -hmm. within higher education. So that's Mm -hmm. when you really start refining, what does the landscape look like that I can sell into, right? Right. And once you identify how large that landscape is and how complicated that landscape is, then it'll give you a sense of how do I need to resource my brand so that we can actually focus on this with people who know what they're doing, as opposed to tasking the individuals who are already here with trying to uncover this, you know, for us. So I think that that's when you start looking at, you know, do I do we put someone, uh, you know, do we hire in 
you know, a skeleton team where we have, uh, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a regional manager um, in, in a New York, in an L.A., in, uh, you know, a Miami, just for argument's sake. Or mm-hmm. do we bring in, uh, you know, an individual leader who is also versed in the discipline of selling and, you know, and, and task it with to them in, in opening these markets for us until the point where we can grow these markets where they can sustain themselves. And then we hire someone in to manage and expand those markets on okay. our behalf. So that's one way to kind of do it in-house. The other way is to is to employ, you know, a broker, right? And there, and brokers and right. food service are, are not so dissimilar to what you'd find in in retail, where they're specialized in, you know, all components of of the go to market, managing distributor relationships, managing operator relationships. It would be amazing if they actually were. <laughs> well, that's 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 what you want, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> that's what you want. I mean, so many of them are, but not all of them are. And sometimes that gets a little complicated. Yeah. It's, 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 it's even, I've, I've found in my experience, it's, it's challenging when you have a broker involved in the picture and you have an internal team, because I feel like managing brokers is a different skill set than selling, for example, into, into oh, operators, yes. into, into accounts. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, this all goes back to the to the secret stuff of you know the talent that you're bringing into your organization and how you're able to to really you know evolve them to a point where they can they can you know kind of you know work at a high level in multiple uh, disciplines. But right. certainly, there's a lot to be uh, a lot to be expected. Obviously, when you bring a broker on, but in my experience, you get out of a broker oftentimes what you are able to what put you, into it. Yes. Um, and then at some point you have to say, hey, look, we're building a business here that, you know, irrespective of how we initially resource this, we can always pivot so that we can be more effective in our go to market. And you, you may go from, you know, a broker, um, you know, a, a broker a dynamic and then say this is not working for us anymore. Let's start building out our, our, our internal capacities to be able to to go after the opportunity that we've already identified. Yeah. I mean, the, the only thing that sounds kind of, first of all, the framework is so good. And I'm like thinking this is just the framework for everything. Like it's not just food service. It's just right. everything. Um, you know, starting with some fundamental questions. Try to keep it simple. Yeah, no, it's great. Um, there, there are two pieces. One is, you know, I'm sort of, again, I don't know if this is just my brain, but like I don't build something unless I'm quite confident I have a customer for it. Yeah. I mean, I think partly that's because I could never be a direct to consumer founder. Like I just didn't have a product for that. Um, And also it's just so expensive and so resource intensive to do something that, you know, for us to make a new product line, for example, like the one that we're launching in two weeks, we already know four major retailers that are taking it in 2024. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't have made it if I didn't have that kind of going in because it's too scary. But it sounds almost like this is probably not going to work that way exactly. You kind of have to build it and then they'll come. You know, we get, like I said, a lot of incoming, like, do you have food service? Do you have food service? Like chimichurri is hard for the home cook but it's very hard for back of house. It's expensive. It's labor intensive. It's a lot of chopping, et cetera. So there is demand, but I haven't found anyone that is a strong enough potential customer or lead 
to actually divert resources away from, you know, the, the consumer products to go make it. Um, so I guess, does it usually happen that way? Like you make it, you figure it out and then you go find customers. Well, that's a really challenging question to answer because, you know, if I look at this as, as a food service leader, and let's just say that I was, you know, in your organization, right? I think that I would prefer to have a scenario in which I had an anchor customer to justify mm-hmm. production. I had an anchor customer to justify the, you know, the, the allocation of, of resources to be able to expand on what we're already doing. Um, right. But the reality is that that doesn't oftentimes, that's not oftentimes the case when you're just getting into food service. I think that you're, you'd be better positioned to do that once you already have validated your food service model to then have, you know, to then have operators that maybe you have already have a deep partnership with where you can kind of expand upon and they can be an anchor customer for a line extension. Um, but I would say that it's always great to have an anchor customer. There's, there's right. no scenario in which that, that, that is not a benefit to the brand, especially when resources are tight. It's just more right. challenging to do so. So what I would say is that you want to be able to create a food service portfolio that isn't so far of a deviation from what you're already doing in retail, mm-hmm. right? So like, for example, mm-hmm. you know, I first, you know, my first rodeo in this was with Sir Kensington's, as you mentioned, and mm-hmm. their first hero product was their tabletop ketchup, right? That came mm-hmm. in a tall in glass bottle. Well, first in the jar, yes. And then ultimately, you know, they, they upgraded into, into a tall bottle. Right, and that same, t- that same t- tall bottle that ultimately was then sold into PJ Clark's in, in New York was the same bottle that was on the shelf in Whole Foods. So there wasn't really mm-hmm. a, so there wasn't a necessity necessarily to recreate this wheel from a product perspective right. because we were able to double down on something that had already been created. Whereas, yeah, I mean, that's like the dream. Yeah. That's a good right. way to do it. But then, yeah. yeah, to your point, when you start talking about some of these back of the house opportunities, you're not going to sell three gallons of anything in, in retail, right? So like you, mm-hmm. you almost have to either be super, super confident in what you've validated as the opportunity being in the market, or to your point, let's determine you know an anchor customer that will validate us going hard with this. Right. And maybe it's a little bit of a moving target as to like when we can go to market We've done all of the all of the baseline work so that once we get this anchor customer, we're ready in, to hit play. We're yeah. ready to go. Exactly. Yeah. So this is going to be a very broad question. So I don't expect you know a perfect answer. But you know, people who listen to this know that I was told very early on, I have a refrigerated product. I should aim for nothing lower than a forty percent gross margin. So assume twenty percent trade give or take a couple of points, my product margins should be really comfortably in the high 50s, low 60s. Mm-hmm. And that gets you to a contribution margin of, let's say, you know, 25, 20%. 30. Yeah. Right. Hopefully. Um, is there a similar sort of, you know, obviously there are people who have products that have 90% product margin. I'm probably never going to make one. Um, but is there a similar sort of, cause I, I mean, I guess volume is one thing, but it should ideally also be margin accretive. Sure. I would think, is there a, you know, and I'm thinking about it, for example, because I would imagine, you know, if it's not a branded moment and it is a bulk, I could imagine a world where instead of using a hundred percent 
extra virgin olive oil, you're using 20% olive oil and 80%, you know, whatever oil, right? From a cost perspective for a bulk product that's not going to be branded, that's going to be back of house, just to be able to keep competitive with whoever's already in there. Because a lot of us, we're making these premium better for you products. I can't imagine that they're not, I mean, I would imagine that the, the, the restaurants, et cetera, are probably looking for something that tastes a little better. Maybe it's a little bit better for you so they can charge a little bit more, but they're not going to put something in that's much more expensive than their current option. I mean, so this is my very long-winded way of saying we're probably going to have to do some stuff to figure out how to get a stronger margin. Mm -hmm. Um, And is there a target margin that we're looking for when we're thinking about building out food service products? I mean, I just straight down the middle, 40% margin is a healthy margin, no matter how you you cut it, right? And if you can get 40% margin in food service, fantastic. And I think that that should be where you want to aim. But I think this also goes back to the initial question that we're asking ourselves here, right? What are we Mm -hmm. getting into food service for? And And if part of the reason why we're getting into food service is to increase our brand awareness, how much are we willing to pay to be able to do that? So, and in, in saying that, how much wiggle room do we have within our own margin that we're willing to give up in order to drive our brand, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, and I think that, you know, brand awareness, especially as you're, as, as a growing brand that's trying to increase household penetration and visibility and, and, and just general awareness and, and recognizing that food service is a space that you can do that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've, I've gotten very aggressive in, on, on trade for the right, for the right operator partner in the past. Right. Right. And, and you're going to have a few of those, um, you know, and nobody outside of you and your partner needs to know what that looks like. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, but I would say that, that, that you just have to, to, to be true to, um, your kind of reasoning behind what right. food, ser- what the contribution food service is going to make past the contribution margin in the first place. Obviously, you want to have a healthy business. Right. And and like what it goes up to at the beginning is what that guy said to me all those years ago. Like you kind of have to choose. Yeah. Because if you're going for that branded awareness, A, you're not messing with your formula at all. B, nope. again, you're probably going to lose a little margin in the sense that you're going to want to spend yep. to get that brand awareness. So again, it kind of becomes a marketing spend. Um, but you could still end up getting some volume sort of efficiencies, you know, on the back end. Also, like that branded play, I mean, that is a play, right? And it, and, mm-hmm. and ultimately, you want to play yourself into a position where you're able to make that back up with your bulk game, right? Like right. you want to be able to create enough halo and awareness and credibility around Haven's Kitchen, for example, where, mm-hmm. you know, where – you know, year three, four into your food service division, now you're able to go get that margin back either through, um, you know, either through your go-to-market 
Maybe you're taking price mm-hmm. on customers and, and or maybe your bulk offering, you're looking at the formulation and you're able to save on the front end through your cogs, right? Maybe there's mm-hmm. a little bit of a different formula. So I think mm-hmm. you have to get creative in how ultimately right. you want to continue to grow the business. Um, but again, if you're able to to get to a 40% margin with a, a, a very strong proposition that operators are willing to take on, um, then I would do that. And I, and I would also say, yeah. for example, in, in your position, the brand is part of the value proposition. It's not just the product, right? So when I talk about the brand being a part of the value proposition, where are you showing up from a purpose perspective, right? Are you uh, are you minority owned? Are you women owned? You know, mm-hmm. can this can this operator get recognition from their eater for making the decision to bring you on as a brand? And if they can, then they may be able to justify charging a little bit more without feeling the so- squeeze at the customer. I want to ask about that and have a serious conversation because that me, that's leading me to think about something. So I was at our new co-packer two weeks ago producing our new product line. And again, we're in pouches again. And the co-packer was basically like, you know, there's all of this sustainability research now on just how much better pouch packaging is than glass or certainly harder plastic, you know, why don't you guys have that on the front of your pouch? And I was like, we not only don't have it on the front of our pouch, we don't have it on the back of our pouch either at this point, because while consumers say they care, they might care, but they don't care enough to spend more money because the packaging is somehow better for the environment. I wish that weren't the case, but I'm going to tell you, I also feel that's the case about women-owned mm. or maybe maybe less minority-owned because I think that that has more meaning. Um, but certainly, you know, does female-founded, okay, maybe they're like, oh, I feel good about myself that I'm supporting this. But the question is, am I willing to spend 10% more on this because it's founded by a woman Mm -hmm. than I am on this because it's not? And so I'm a little cynical at this point that consumers, with the way the economy is, are making those choices. My guess is having been a restaurant slash brick and mortar kind of food operator, I don't know that I would pay more and then I don't know that I would feel comfortable passing it on to my customer. So I guess the question is, how much are you really getting in that sort of halo effect when it comes to pricing from a bulk perspective? Like, you know? I hear you. And that's a, you know, that's a challenging question to answer because I- I set it up a little challengingly. Oh, good. I love that. (laughs) Well, I mean, because I have a point of view. It wasn't like a, it wasn't like a, what do you think? It was like, here's what I think. No, I I hear you. I think, I think two things. One, I don't think anyone has actually ever done a property, a proper elasticity um, kind of um, evaluation on how much we can actually expect, um, eaters to be able to, to want to absorb. And I would say that it's, I think it's a little bit different in retail, right? Where there's that, mm-hmm. that direct, um, that direct connection between right. the they shopper like, and the brand, right? right? Mm-hmm. Whereas when in food service, 
there, there's a space for that conversation to be had, right? So when you yeah. think about like the non-commercial world, right? When you think about the Aramarks, the Sodexos and the Compass Groups, they have corporate social responsibility metrics mm-hmm. that they're yes. held a- that they're that they're held accountable to mm-hmm. every single year that they report out against. It's really hard for them to find uh, an appropriate level of certified women-owned and or certified minority-owned. So if you have a fantastic mm-hmm. product, in addition to the fact that you checked some of these other boxes for them, I think that that's only a a, a, a good thing. That's only a value add. Yep. To answer your question okay. around around you know. Does that resonate at the end of the day with the, you know, the, the, the individual who's consuming the product? I don't know. Right. You know, I, I, I don't know. I would like to think that Sodexo, Compass Group, and, uh, and Aramark, for example, have done enough diligence on their side with their clients to recognize that that's an important narrative that they want to align with and not right. have to leave that to the responsibility of the brands to figure out, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Kind of feels like, kind of feels like an interesting time with all of that, right? Like uh, the even with innovation, you know, everyone's like, oh, you know, we love innovation and we love supporting emerging brands. But at the same time, whether it's a restaurant or a retailer or you know, a, a consumer, like people are are voting with their wallets. Yeah. Which you are know, tight and right, right now. now they're voting on what value is it to me? Yep. And they're not necessarily voting on does this align with my sort of larger, you know, and I say that sort of like sadly. Um, yep. But it's funny because I remember, and I'm sure I've said this before, but I remember when I, when I had the cooking school and we had this cafe in front and, you know, we made all of the food ourselves. We, you know, bought organic you know, produce, we paid our labor very well. Um, and, you know, we had broccoli that like a side order of broccoli that we, you know, charge $6 for that cost us nine, you know, when you really added it all up. And one day this woman complained, you know, and said she was just going to go to Pret or whatever. And I actually did the math. I, I didn't know how much that side order of broccoli cost us. She wanted us to add more to her plate, even though we'd sort of like portioned it out, um, just like a, a buffet style, you know, like just take as much broccoli as you want. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I remember thinking to myself, OK, so at some point the American consumer did decide non-GMO, organic, those are those are signals to them where like they're comfortable spending that 10% more, 15% more. And even that is somewhat questionable sometimes, right? Right now, again, not so sure. But, you know, that that threshold seems like it was crossed. What's never been crossed in the American consumer world is labor, right, ever. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the fact that we didn't have a commissary, the fact that we were paying really good fair wages and, like, taking care of our people, that didn't really matter. Right. Like they're not willing to pay for that. And unfortunately, I think some of this environmental stuff, too, you know, it just doesn't seem like it's I think where your where your point is like making me really think is like that's why those requirements on those companies is so important, because my guess is that Sodexo or whatever wouldn't necessarily care either, except that they have 
this like CSR sort of like system where that is part of the way they're evaluating their success. I, I think that, you know, we're, we're in this, in the world of food, we're, we're in this space of, of, of cycle, right? And right mm-hmm. now, you know, the cycle that we're in is very much in this, um, you know, protective slash defensive cycle that is, you know, that is, a, a, you know, that is a, a direct residual from our economic, um, you know, standing as individuals, right. as, as, as a country. So I, 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 all the things that you're saying, absolutely. But I think that one of the reasons why I truly enjoy this space, and I think that you do too, coming from mm-hmm. coming from an operator, you know, kind of service, you know, restaurant maker perspective, yeah. is that if 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 we didn't exist, and the customers out there who who want what what we are providing them with didn't exist, then we would have a very broken, continuing, continually broken food system, which I think mm-hmm. we've all identified is not healthy for the future, right. uh, you know, of our of our country. So, yeah. so yes, I do think that there are customers out there that don't necessarily feel today that it's worthwhile. But I do also believe that it's incumbent upon all of the, sh- the stakeholders within the food system to to create that narrative so that it is digestible. You know, both yeah. from a pocketbook perspective and from and, and from an intellectual perspective, when it comes to the people who are who are purchasing our products, and I think that that's one of the things that that a lot of challenger brands are up against. In addition to a thousand other things that we're up against, yep. is you know yep. how do we how, how do we actually get this goodness grade where where you know to the ears and to the eyes that it need that it needs to right. uh, to to be in front of and, and so that it's ultimately valued. So I hear you, but I don't think yeah. that we should ever give up the fight. No, I agree. And I, I, I love that. And I appreciate that. I'm, I'm definitely not giving up the fight. I think, you know, by Monday at five, I'm like, huh, but, (laughs) but you know, that's why like, it's so, it's so helpful to interview, you know, the Gary Hirschbergs of the world and the John Forekers of the world. And, you know, Mm -hmm. like the people who not only changed the way that they made a product, but changed the way that the American consumer thought about fair trade or organic or, you know, simple ingredients or whatever, you know, um, it's just, yeah, it's the, that cycle has to be like in a certain place, I think for that to really take hold. Um, but you're right. I mean, when I was giving farmer's market tours to, you know, kids 17, 18 coming with their big gulps and, you know, from the McDonald's across the street, you know, I was, it, for me, I was like, you think that that's inexpensive. It's really, really expensive. Like yeah. just, you know, what's not expensive, this strawberry, you know? So, yeah. um, you, I mean, I mean, expensive in, in so many different ways. Like you think about yeah. it, fast forward your life 20 years from now, mm-hmm. when you're dealing with hypertension and diabetes, mm-hmm. you know, how, how much value did you actually get out of that? You know, that, you know, 64 ounce big gulp. Yep. Yep. But I digress. Yep. No, I mean, and, and the subsidies, I mean, everything. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So I think I know what you're going to say, but measuring success, let's say this chutney company, they've figured it out They're They've made a product. How do they know if it's working? And I guess follow-up question to that is like, should they 
before they figure out if it's working or not, should they should should people right now be going on the food service websites and seeing who their competition is and seeing what else is out there and seeing the prices and the case packs and things like that? Is there a way to do that? So I guess question the second question first. Yeah. Uh, second question. Yes. Um, like really quick uh, cheat code on trying to mm-hmm. understand, you know, what the food service landscape potentially looks like foodservicedirect.com. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're basically, you know, for a lack of, for the, for the layman, laywoman, they're basically Amazon for food service. So if you're mm. not, if, you know, if you're, an, if you're an operator and you're not aligned, for example, with, you know, the big broad line distributors, you know, you're not pulling in five cases of X product a week. You can, you can go to foodservicedirect.com and get a lot of these same products. And, the distribution uh, model in food services is probably you know we could have a whole other call and a whole other episode specifically right. on that, but 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 food service direct essentially pulls from the same distribution hub that broadline distribution pulls from, so you get a general sense of like what what is out there on the market and what the mm-hmm. relative price points are. That's huge. Okay, I love that we made people wait for the cheat code until we're <laughs> like two minutes from the end of the episode because now they just have to listen. Well, you just splash splash this in as the as part of the promo trailer, and then you know. Oh, by to- the, yeah, I'm going to be like, "There's a cheat code at the end. Listen <laughs> yeah. until the end." Um, then I guess my last question is: I'm assuming you're going to say you measure success based on the first thing you said, which is asking yourself the question: mm-hmm. <laughs> What's our intention? You're successful if you're, you know hitting it and you're not if you're not but i'm sure there's a better way for you to talk about that i i mean it comes down to one word for me and it's and that's traction um you know when you're going to market whether you know you're doing it internally at you know as almost uh you know a gorilla you know kind of you know team of individuals inside your organization who aren't even versed in food service, but they're going to try to figure it out anyways. Um, mm-hmm. Or if you hire in a, a new experienced leader from the outside, traction is going to be key. So, you know, when you are now soliciting restaurants, you know, with your story, with your value proposition, do they want to hear more? Are they requesting mm-hmm. samples? Are they, you know, are they, you know, asking for pricing? You know, are they setting you up with their distribution, uh, uh, distributor of, of, of preference so that they could bring the product in? Like it's all these kind of little micro mm-hmm. moments that continue to validate what you're doing in food service. And that's when you just start scaling it. It's literally rinsing and repeating, learning, rinsing and repeating. Um, so I would say once you start getting that traction, um, it'll put you in a place where you can start to reevaluate where you're at, how you're attacking things, what do you need to change internally to get more out of the traction that we're already seeing, and continually kind of being in that in that process of, of, of evaluation and, uh, and and proactivity. Amazing. Well, this was fun. Wasn't this yeah. a great conversation? <laughs> like, I, had a good, I had a good time. Yeah. Like we talked about a lot. Um, I know. And we got, we got I, philosophical too, which, you know. We did. We got deep. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, I'm sure people will want to reach out after, but Ray, I guess the best way to find you is just on LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, and Liam, as always, thank you so much for engineering today's show. 
And uh, folky folks who are listening, I will be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.